Blog Talk Radio. Do you watch Fox News all day? Are you dizzy from conservative spin? Are you a birther or teabagger? You might be suffering from a condition called barachnophobia. If so, the only cure is Liberal Dan Radio. Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Central on Blog Talk Radio. Warning, Liberal Dan Radio is not a substitute for doctor's advice. Severe cases of barachnophobia may require psychiatric help. This may prove expensive if Republicans repeal health care. Listening to Liberal Dan Radio may cause you to embrace things like facts, logic, and reason. If these symptoms last for more than four hours, you have been cured. For more information, go to liberaldan.com. Liberal Dan Radio, Talk from the Left, That's Right. This is your host, Dan Zimmerman, coming from New Orleans, Louisiana. To join the conversation is area code 347-838-8368. That is area code 347-838-8368. Or you can join us in the chat room on the Blog Talk Radio page and use your Skype button to connect that way. Or if you're listening after the live broadcast and like to leave your uh, questions or concerns, you can always feel free to... uh, Comments over on the liberaldan.com webpage on the show thread. Uh, later on in today's show, I'm, I'm going to have author Gary Rivlin, uh, author of the book Katrina After the Flood. Uh, he is going to be a guest at Rising Tide X. And uh, actually, I'm going to be there as well. I'm going to be both having a booth uh, at there doing a uh, hopefully a live broadcast uh, from the convention and uh, af- hopefully after uh, I think working out the time on this properly um, I may also be giving a little intro on podcasting uh, in one of the breakout sessions so if you're in the area and would like to come check me out either uh, you know join me on the show and you know you could probably uh, have chat a little bit too or if you want to uh, see my presentation on podcasting uh, I'll be more than happy to have you again uh, Rising Tide X is free to the public just got to go to the web page and give your little RSVP, and there you go. Uh, but always, as always, I want to start off the show with a uh, quick, a snarky look at this week's headlines. In women's health news, a Vi- female Viagra has now been approved by the FDA. News is that with Bernie Sanders rising in the polls, Hillary is going to be getting some for electile dysfunction. A student trying to kill himself by jumping off of a building in Hawaii was stopped by another student who then fell to his death. The initial jumper also fell, but was spared death. No news on if the initial jumper would try again. My guess is he already took one life already. Might as well save this one. Data from AshleyMadison.com was apparently dumped on the Internet. Now you can see all the login information for all of the spam bots you were talking to that uh, you thought might help you cheat on your wife. And apparently one of the non-spam bot accounts belonged to Josh Duggar, who apparently had a paid account. So much for the sanctity of marriage. Tell me again how gay people are ruining that? It was revealed that Jared from Subway will be uh, taking a plea deal in his charges uh, against him in child pornography and other sex crime charges in a sting that had taken place. Apparently, part of his weight loss plan was to give away all of his candy. He then bought a van. One thing led to another. People wonder why Jared and Subway split after 15 years. Apparently 15 years is too old for him. And Jared's career with Subway started with him trying to get into smaller pants, and apparently it has ended that way as well. Finally, Bobby Jindal announced yesterday that he supports Donald Trump's idea to end birthright citizenship. And that was this week's headlines. Now, um, what to do first? Let's let's do the tweet of the week first, because the tweet of the week and what what I also want to talk about are both related. So, tweet of the week by the Screen Team uh, on Twitter. You can of course see their account and the tweet that I tweeted. Uh, it says, "Ah, uh, Subway still has this up on their site." LOL. Hashtag Jared Fogle. It's an image. Subway kids, bring 
bring your kids' meal to life. Kids can play the Jared's Pants Dance game. Watch cool videos and have more Subway Kids fun anytime, anywhere. Yeah, I don't think they want to have kids dancing with Jared's pants. <laughs> that is just wrong. Anyway, so that, uh, usually, I don't know. It, that's just, that was a awesome find, and I can't believe they still have that on their site. It is ridiculous. But um, that is just one thing. Um talk about before I guess before the first commercial break. Um Bobby Jindal thing. Um if if you haven't noticed and, and I might have discussed this before. I think I might have brought this up on one of my Jindal shows that I did right after he announced his his candidacy for the presidency. His futile windmill chasing candidacy for the presidency. That it seems kind of hypocritical for the, you know, for the people who are pro-life, you know, beginning at the embry- at an embryo, uh, to want to grant embryo embryos, you know, the same rights as citizens have, um, especially because they're the first ones to want to say, you know, criticize birthright citizenship, and you know, as Dobby Jindal was actually conceived outside of this country. Uh, he often jokes about how his parents, uh, you know, came here and she was pregnant and he, she, he would have been considered a pre-existing condition. That's his, often his joke. He acknowledges the fact that his parents came here, not citizens, and gave birth to him. He has birthright citizenship. Bobby Jindal is a citizen by the nature of his birth alone because nothing else qualifies him for citizenship at birth. Just because he was born on U.S. soil makes him a citizen. Yet, he agrees with Donald Trump, stating that he wants to end birthright citizenship. I guess this just proves that he's not serious about being president because he wants to eliminate the qualification that would enable him to be president. It's he has lost his damn mind. Now, some people, if you're listening, might say, well, I thought Jindal already had lost his damn mind. Well, you know, sure. He has supported some crazy things in the past, and things I, I widely disagree with. But for him to, to support this, that's a, the last marred part of his mind just went away. He lost his marbles. We've been playing a game recently, a little funny little cute game with my kid, um, where my two-year-old is like, you know, can you check your head to see if it has marbles in it? And he'll go and shake his head. And he's like, no marbles. And, well, I think somebody needs to perform the same check on on Jindal, and I think they'll find that there's none. Done. They're they're gone. Gone pecan. That just... I could not believe that he would actually say that. It's just crazy. Now, I would have liked to have played a cricket sound after it, but apparently I'm having some blog talk radio uh, audio uploading problems. So, uh, hopefully the show is is processing okay, Um, especially because of my guest. So, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to take my first commercial break now. Um, and then I'll talk about some of the other things I wanted to speak about before uh, Mr. Rivlin uh, comes on the show. So if you want to join in again, it's 347-838-8368, or you can uh, join us in the chat room, ask questions there, connect via Skype to the show that way too, or if you're listening again after the live broadcast, leave your comments over at liberaldan.com. Until the end of the break, this is Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left, that's right. Are you planning a trip to Disney soon? Do you want help avoiding spending mistakes and making the most of your vacation? Then check out BudgetEars.com, a new site devoted to helping you get the most mouse for your money. 
What kinds of tickets should you get? Is the dining plan a good deal for you? Should you stay on grounds or not? Should you buy park hoppers? Many other sites are filled with information about what other people like to do, but Budgeteers is geared to help you make the best decision for you. So check out Budgeteers.com or go to YouTube.com slash Budgeteers and help make your trip the best it can be. Budgeteers.com is not a travel agency and it is not affiliated with the Disney Corporation or any of its holdings. I am sick and tired of the propaganda in today's media. You know, we can't have a sane discussion about politics. Well, yes, you can, and it's on ROJS Radio Live with your girls, Monica RW, and Autumn F. I'm there every week when they discuss Michigan and national politics, job search, unemployment, and more from independent laugh, sanity-based point of view. So, tune in. ROJS Radio Live, Saturdays and Sundays at 11 a.m. sharp here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Welcome back to Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left, that's right. This is your host, Dan Zimmerman, coming from New Orleans, Louisiana. To join the conversation is area code 347-838-8368. That is area code 347-838-8368. Again, you can also uh, join us in the chat room, uh, connect via Skype, or leave your comments after the live broadcast over at liberaldan.com. So one of the things that happened this week... it was making the Facebook rounds was NFL player James Harrison. Um, you know, I was pretty impressed with him last year and he was able to come back from, you know, basically kind of retiring and, and, you know, he was able to make a good impact and start playing really well. Um, and he now is, he has two kids, two boys, and they participated in something and they had a participation award or something like that. And whenever these sort of things come up, you typically have your same kind of a lot of the people on the right are going to say that's horrible. And a lot of people on the left are going to be like, well, what's wrong with that? And um, and it's, it, you kind of have your, your typical mindsets where, you know, I could understand where, you know, maybe a conservative would be like, oh, well, that's just a freebie. You know, just like everything else that they consider to be, quote, freebies. And liberals will kind of be like, oh, well, they deserve to have it, you know, and, and let, let them feel good about themselves. And, you know, it's, you know, I guess there, you shouldn't be surprised when, when some people come on one side or the other. And you probably won't be surprised about how I generally feel about it. Um, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and advocate for um, just every single thing you do, you get a participation award. I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that at all. But the people that are saying that they're harmful, that it's harmful, that it's bad, and, and I've made this point about a lot of other things that conservatives say is, quote, harmful, they offer no proof. They don't say that somebody is, you know, gets a sense of entitlement if they're given things for free, and as such, they won't care for other things uh, when they do it. They're they just say that that's 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 how it is, and we're just supposed to accept it and believe it. Um, again, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that a conservative, a lot of the people who tend to support, you know, believing things because of faith and not because of facts, logic, and reason, uh, that they would also want to put that in other areas of life as well. That the idea that just because you believe it's something that believe is something true that that makes it true. So you have. What I see, though, is is kind of a a contradiction, if you will, of beliefs here. Because, uh, and it was funny because when I was having this conversation with 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 people, they, for the most part, you know, I actually made the Ricky Bobby joke from from Talladega Nights. Well, if you're not first, you're last, and then, and then I made the point to continue on to say, well, when Ricky Bobby's father said that, he was high, and that only when later on in life, when Ricky Bobby was was told by his dad that he was high when he said it, he was. It's not something that you should take seriously. Only after realizing that, you know, if you're not first, you're last. It was just a bunch of hooey. Was he able to then enjoy his life 
and enjoy the race itself. He wasn't able to enjoy the race for the race's sake, which is what the people are, the people are telling the kids that they should enjoy playing for playing sake and not for getting a participation trophy. But these are the same people that are like, win or go home, right? So you have these people who are trying to, again, suggest that these, these this is harmful and not giving any proof. Um, and, and, and then I had this conversation, and somebody actually, in a different conversation, brought up Ricky Bobby. <laughs> brought up, if you're not first, you're last. So I had to repeat myself over again. You know, that it it was not a good piece of advice. His daddy did not give him good advice when he said, if you're not first, you're last. That his, uh, that, that again, he, he learned to love the racing and just doing it for the racing and doing it for himself only after he figured out that it's not all about winning or losing. So, and but there's the contradiction here is that these, we do all the time as adults reward people who are not the best. You know, I go to work. I'm the best person. I might not be the best person at my work, but I get the job done and I get a paycheck. I get a reward. I think the best example of this, or there's another one too, marathon runners. Somebody runs a marathon. Let's say they come in dead last. They're still getting applauded as they cross the finish line. They're still, people are still congratulating them for what they've done. They didn't win, but they, they participated. They finished the race. They achieved a goal. They did something good. And sometimes, that feeling of, of recognition for doing something good, even if you're not a winner, can make you feel like a winner, can make you feel good. You know, you don't have to necessarily hide all of life's drama that comes down on kids. You know, they can they can learn to appreciate loss. I tell my kids all the time that life isn't fair, when, or that, you know, they went when they want something, and I'd be like, well, oh, I want a million dollars, and stuff like that. But the Olympics, represents the contradiction here. I bet you these people who are saying, oh, either win or go home, either first or last, you you, you know, you know, shouldn't be rewarding people for mediocrity. That's another thing somebody said to me. Not being the best. The Olympics, we do it all the time. There's silver medals. There's bronze medals. Sometimes you even have two bronze medals if there's a tie for third. Now, if it's tied for second, you just get two silvers. You don't get a bronze. But if there's a tie for third, you get two third, third and fourth place both get bronze medals because they're both third place, technically. They're not being told that you know, they're mediocre. They're not, they're not having a sense of entitlement, oh, well, we didn't finish first, but we still get a medal, haha. No, and and you don't see somebody, anybody get, getting a bronze medal saying, you know what, you know, I'm happy with this, I'm not going to try any harder, this is good enough for me. Everybody who gets a gold, bronze medal wanted the gold. That's why they were competing. They got tons of recognition for being athletes on the Olympics. You know, news coverage, plenty of things happen, especially American athletes, get on the news. And even if they don't win, they still congratulate them for giving it their best and trying hard and this, that, the other. And getting the, that accolade or getting a, a certificate, you know, getting, let's say, it's, and it's, it's arbitrary that you pick third place. Why not fourth? Why not seventh? Why does eighth not get a spot? Why does eighth not get a medal? Why can't we give like different colored medals all the way down from platinum all the way down to pewter? I don't know. And but it's just an arbitrary place. We decided to stop at third. And the people that stop at third, people that get to third place, they're not going to sit there the next race. They go, you know what? I don't need to try as hard. I got a medal. No, they're going to try again to get the gold. 
And if they don't get it the next time, they're going to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying until they either don't qualify again or they get the gold. And then they're still going to keep trying because they want to do the best that they can possibly do. So the idea that there is a sense of entitlement that comes with giving somebody something for not winning, it's just not backed up in any sort of fact that I can see. You show me it and I'll change my mind. But I don't see it. And I'm more inclined to believe, like somebody gave me an anecdote about somebody who uh, was giving like participation things in in school and you know he was doing really well early on in life but then he faltered and he barely passed high school didn't even maybe he didn't even pass high school went on a flipping burgers and now he feels like he's deserved he's entitled of things like that he deserves things just because he's him well you know you know what i have to say about that really is it to me it's likely because of the fact that maybe his parents instilled that with him. I, I, I'm I'm pretty certain that if he didn't get those certificates of of, a, of whatever of participation, I mean, in school they have attendance award for a perfect attendance. Literally, you can get an award for just showing up. It's not even on you because it's the parents' responsibility to get the kids to school, but yet. They have no problem with a perfect attendance award, even though you're literally only doing the bare minimum, which is showing up, showing showing up to school. But I would I would be inclined to believe that anybody who is you know somebody who slacks off or doesn't try their best, who's lazy or what have you, anybody who would do that when they get a participation award certificate trophy or what have you is likely going to slack off and be lazy not want to you know give it their all regardless of whether or not they got an award if they got nothing they'd probably do the same thing the kid who maybe just you know maybe the kid is on the you know, soccer team because his dad is the coach and, and but he really doesn't want to be on the team and so he doesn't try very hard so he winds up sitting most of the time. Well, that's kind of unrealistic. I think the kid would still be forced to play. So, because, you know, that's playground politics for you. But, you know, that kid is going to try or not try. I know Yoda says do or do not, there is no try. But he's either going to give his effort or he's not going to give his effort. Regardless of whether or not there's a award a at the end for the kid. Because if he if he's, hasn't been taught the values to keep always trying your best and always apply yourself, then he's not going to do it because he gets an award. And he's not going to not do it because he doesn't get an award. His getting award is is meaningless in the whole scheme of things. His getting an award is nothing. There's n- there's nothing that's going to cause such a person, you know, to to just go ahead and decide on a whim. Oh, well, I'm going to do my best. And taking that award away is not going to make him want to do his best either. Only by instilling the values of doing one's best will somebody try and do their best. And so that's basically it. All right. I do want to, before I get to the, the second break, and unfortunately those files don't seem to be uploading either, um, again, because we're having some blog talk radio technical issues. But um, I do want to talk about, quickly, back to the presidential election. We've already talked about Jindal and his birthright citizenship. Well, there are actually people who don't think that Jindal is qualified because they don't believe that you're a citizen, you're, you're a natural born citizen. Even if you're a citizen at birth, they don't believe that that makes you automatically a natural born citizen. And they have some arguments as to whether or not you're a natural born citizen. Well, Ted Cruz falls under similar 
um, rules. Let's. I've compared Ted Cruz and Obama before with what Ted Cruz's story was and what Obama's story is. Um, and that, you know, if Obama – Obama was born in America and that makes him a natural-born citizen, period. Now, had Obama actually been born in Kenya, like people were suggesting, he wouldn't have been a natural-born citizen, even if his mom was a citizen because his mom didn't live in the country the requisite number of years before, prior to the law stating that that's the number of years you have to live in America before the kid can be a citizen automatically at birth. Ted Cruz's mother did live in America for the requisite amount of time before uh, before uh, he was born, before they moved up to Canada. And that makes him also qualified to be president. Um, however, there's some interesting people spouting out now that it's possible that she did she converted her citizenship to a Canadian citizenship before he was born. That's an interesting case. That might actually you might actually have a problem there. He might actually have a problem there because she will then have not qualify for um, that special stipulation in the law in which such she wouldn't have been a citizen at birth, and as such she wouldn't be considered a natural born citizen. So. I doubt the birthers are going to take on that one because, well, he's not Obama. Um, some might, but I think most won't. Um, but it, it's definitely an interesting thing. I, I don't necessarily know um, how one goes about proving when she, uh, I guess you could make a public records request in Canada or something and try and see whatever. I don't know, but that's just a new rumor that's happening. Anyway. Let me go ahead and take the second commercial break, and when we come back, we'll be discussing uh, a Katrina After the Flood with author Gary Rivlin. Uh, taking your calls as well, your phone number is 347-838-8368. That's area code 347-838-8368. And this is Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left. That's right. representation or advice on issues such as family law, bankruptcy law, DWI, or other civil or criminal matters, you need hands-on legal advice from someone who will treat you as a priority and not just another number. So call the law office of Sherry I. Sandler at 504-528-9500. That's 504-528-9500. Or email sandlerlaw at cox.net. I trust Sherry with my legal needs. So should you. The preceding ad was an unpaid client endorsement. Do you like fun jewelry? Do you wish you could design jewelry that is designed just for you and that tells your story? Well, with Origami Owl, you can do just that. An Origami Owl jewelry bar is a fun way to get together with your friends, hang out, and design jewelry. There is no pressure to buy, but when you host a party, either in person or online, you have the opportunity to get deeply discounted jewelry based on what the friends you invite to the party purchase. If you would be interested in holding a party, either online or in person, go to cassiezcharms.origamiowl.com. That is C-A-S-S-I-E-Z charms.origamiowl.com and contact Cassie today. Welcome back to Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left, that's right. This is your host, Dan Zimmerman, coming at you from New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, to join the conversation, it's area code 347-838-8368. That is area code 347-838-8368. Uh, you could also join us in the chat room. Leave your questions or comments there. Uh, hit the Skype button while in on the Blog Talk Radio page and connect directly to the show via Skype. Or you can also uh, leave your comments after the live broadcast over at the show thread on liberaldan.com. I do want to thank uh, Untested Methods, my friend Eric. Uh, if you like the bumper music that comes back and forth between uh, the uh, commercial breaks, uh, you know, just finish, finish visit facebook.com slash methods, the letter U, methods. 
and uh, that is his Facebook page, and he um, thankfully gave me the right to use his uh, music that he created um, free of charge. So I definitely appreciate him in doing that. But now I do want to get to uh, our special guest. I believe that probably is him on the line right now. Um, the book is called uh, Katrina After the Flood. Um, John Barry, author of Rising Tide, uh, said Katrina is an important book. It's important not because it's brilliantly reported or well-written, not because it uncovers everything from political maneuvering in the White House to despicable acts of selfishness, and not because it also tells stories of courage and tenacity that give meaning to the word inspirational. It's important as a case study of both how not to handle a disaster and how to survive one. There are real lessons here. And one of the other people uh, that I enjoy... uh, Watching on TV sometimes, Michael Eric Dyson says, Gary Rivlin is one of our nation's most sharp-eyed cultural observers and one of our most gifted social historians. Katrina is a provocative and beautifully rendered book that reminds us that the subject of race is always percolating below the surface. The vividly told and haunting Katrina is vital, not only for understanding New Orleans and what happened there over the last 10 years, but for understanding divisions of race and class across America today. So now I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Gary Rivlin onto the show. Thank you, Gary, for calling in. Thank you, Daniel. Um, very happy to have you. Um, looking forward to also seeing you at Rising Tide uh, X, uh, being held in Xavier University in New Orleans on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Um, just, I guess, start us off, you know, give a little background as to, uh, you know, how you basically got to the point where you decided that this is a book that you had to write. You know, it, I was actually in San Francisco covering Silicon Valley, Google going public, all that stuff, for the New York Times when Katrina hit. Um, but there was this all-hands mentality. Earlier in my career, I had covered Chicago politics, racial politics, urban politics. It was a passion of mine. So, you know, they asked for a volunteer, and hmm, instead of writing the next Hewlett-Packard reorganizing story, I, I, I went to went to New Orleans and went to the Gulf Coast. I actually arrived first at Baton Rouge. It took me a few days to get into the city. It was still flooded then. This is the, the week after after the levees broke. Um, right. And, and, you know, I, I most everyone was paying attention to that first week. It was understandable. It's, it's, it's George Bush's fault. It's Governor Blanco's fault. It's Ray Nagin's fault. It's the fault of everyone who didn't leave. It's no one's fault. Uh, they asked the preachers. It's, it's New Orleans' fault for being too libertine a city. But I, 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 from the start, was just, what are you going to do? I mean, 80% of your city was covered in water, and, you know, most of the schools are gone and public transportation and the utilities. How do you rebuild a city? This was the worst urban disaster in modern U.S. history. And I, I just, you know, I used to call it Sim City, S-I-M City, New Orleans. Like, okay, you play the game. There's no money. You know, half right. the country thinks you shouldn't rebuild anyway. Everyone's arguing. There are legionary, legendary problems with crime and bad schools and corruption before Katrina. And now you have a disaster on, on this proportion. So I, I just was fascinated. It's interesting. I, I was so infected by this story. I, I definitely used to joke, ich bin New Orleanian. I, I am a New Orleanian. You know, I was getting mad at the world because I was living in New Orleans and no one was paying attention. So I, the, the paper was going to move me down there, but I, I kind of learned the hard way that I'm really allergic to mold. I, I couldn't have told yeah. you that before, Katrina, but you know, I had like this 100% Geiger counter. If I... If I came across a place that had taken water, I mean, the, the, the windows could be closed, the air conditioner could be blasting, and my nose would twitch, like, okay, they got water in this part of the city. And, you know, I, I couldn't take it anymore, so after eight months, I, I, I gave up. But I always thought there was this great book to be written. This, this was a moment in a city where everything was up for grabs. I mean, you were going to shrink half the city, you know, public hospital, public housing. You know, we're going to remake the city. It's going to be taller. It's going to be different. It's going to be wider. It's going to not have the same problems it had. You know, so everything, everything was a fight. Everything, everything was up for grabs. And, you know, taking you back to that time, I, I was there. You weren't 100% sure that New Orleans was going to come fully back. You, you wouldn't have guessed that New Orleans is as back as it is, even though I would argue uh, there's a whole lot more 
um, uh, that needs to be done, even though your your, your mayor is ready to declare mission mission accomplished. He did in May declare mission accomplished. That you know the recovery is behind you now. Um, there's still work to be done, but you know, in, in a way, it is a miracle that that, that you that the city is at that point is at the point that it is now. Oh, definitely, I agree. And and we, you know, I was, I, I do remember. I mean, I evacuated from um, first. It was in t- 2004. It was Hurricane Ivan uh, that was that was coming towards us, and and actually in 2000, I think three or 2002, there was Hurricane George's that was coming at us, and I didn't think George's was going to hit us, and they and they they did this huge evacuation, and I stayed, and nothing happened because it turned, um, and then I evacuated for Ivan because it was concerning to me, but then it turned, um, and then you know. You'd think that a lot of people might have been, oh, well, those two storms turn. This one's going to turn, too. And it did a little bit, but not enough, obviously. Um, but, yeah, I was definitely in that people definitely getting out of their mass exodus, uh, watching those pictures from television, seeing, you know, you know, this not just Orleans Parish, you know, because there was, you know, a lot of people who are outside of or, or New Orleans or might might either re- re- forgotten it after they saw the coverage or might just not know it, is that you have – Orleans Parish proper, which is New Orleans, and you have all the surrounding areas, which a lot of that also got damaged too. Um, you know, I came out of it amazingly lucky, um, but there were a lot of people, obviously, who didn't. And you know, one of the stories that I heard initially um, from you know when I was in Houston, you know, for those I think it was five or six weeks that I was in Houston before we were finally allowed to go back to Kenner, Louisiana, which is right by the airport. For those who don't know, um, was the story of uh, the group of people uh, who were attempting to cross the bridge and get to the west bank of New Orleans, which had been relatively, you know, untouched when it came to there was no water, an overall there was no water damage. There was, the there was no water there, and you know there was obviously wind damage, but it was it was definitely doing much better than than the east bank, and which is kind of weird when you're saying that because in order to travel the bridge to get from the east bank to the west bank, you have to travel east. Now, now imagine it from you know some guy who until Katrina, you know had a tourist knowledge of yeah. of uh, New Orleans. Like you know, it's it's interesting. Like now in the last three or four years, I've been coming you know every other month to do my reporting. I never go to the French Quarter. I'm barely ever in the Garden District or uptown at all. I'm, I'm I'd be in Lakeview. I'd be in Gentilly. I'd be in the Ninth Ward. I'd be in New Orleans. East, none of those communities I just named uh, could I have told you uh, did, did I had I ever ever heard of um, right. before uh, before before Katrina. Um, you know, it, it's it's. I mean, it, I mean, a couple of things while you were talking. One, I, I know a lot of people in New Orleans know this, but it really is incredible. I think from a national audience's point of view, that you know, Katrina was actually a a relatively, I don't want to call it modest, it was a, a, a significant hurricane, but not really the kind that you would have heard, be hearing about 10 years later. It was actually a weak Category 3 by the time it hit New Orleans, if not a, a strong Category 2, and it did turn, uh, hit much harder the, the Gulf Coast. And so, you know, we all talk about the hurricane, but really what New Orleans is commemorating now is the 10-year anniversary of the flood, of the collapse right. of the levee system. The levee system should not have collapsed. We, we, we should have been, us reporters from the outside should have been spending a, a, a day noting a few inches of water in, in New Orleans streets and then going back to the, the, the ruined Gulf Coast. And, right. You know, I mean, that, 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 that's another thing that I think makes this story Profound, uh, you know, the 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 human incompetence. Uh, that quote from the UC Berkeley scientist, uh, Professor B. Um, the worst engineering disaster. The levee fail was the worst le- um, engineering disaster since Chernobyl. Um, you know, rather rather damning damning stuff. Yeah, that that is pretty damning. And and you know, I've actually I think I knew. You know, my wife had a house over in um, Chalmette, and so she had to deal with the Mr. Go and that flooding, and it, you know, it, you know, eight feet of water, you know, in that house that she had just inherited. Um, it was, it was, you know, surprisingly enough, a lot of people were, were complaining about Allstate you know, insurance, but they actually just said, oh, okay, that's where you live, here's a check. So it was, it was actually, you know, surprisingly good with with them. But you know, but, but can we, can we, the other thing I want to touch on is. Sure. You, you brought up the blockade of the Crescent City connection. Right, I wanted Gretner. to get back to that too. Yeah, the Gretner, as, as, let, let, right. uh, Yeah, when I was evacuated, it's one of the first things I was hearing was that the, the people crossing, trying to get from the East Bank to the West Bank, because it was, you know, trying to basically just move on the way. But 
I think even until I read your book, I I didn't actually know, you know, who those people were, you know, as opposed to you know as it, as it comes to you know their relation to you know working in the city and stuff like that. And um, I also didn't even realize how bad the interaction actually was. You see, to, 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 to me, this is Black Lives Matter. This is the intersection. Yeah. Of, you know, let's use hashtags. We'll be very Twitter savvy here. You know, flat, hashtag Katrina Ten meets. You know, Black Black Lives Matter. I mean, to me, because there was so much going on uh, in those first days after Katrina, people were paying attention to the botched rescue and and you know the the euthanasia at 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 a hospital and you know just just there were so many stories to report. I really think the Gretna Bridge got some attention, but not the attention it deserves. I feel, in fact, this is why I opened the book with it. And I actually spent more time recreating scenes on that bridge than any other aspect of this book. That, that probably I spent three months just on the opening because I, I really think that the Gretna Bridge should be synonymous with uh, uh, you know, Ferguson or, or West Baltimore going back into time, uh, you know, Howard Beach. Like, kind of something, it just, just one of those shorthands that says, you know, the, the, the issue of race is, is, is always percolating just under the, under the uh, surface. I mean, you had largely black crowd, but as you point out, included city workers, police officers wearing their yeah. police shirts, um, uh, old people, people in wheelchairs, children, just families, just, you know, for many, the only escape route from flooded New Orleans, from the, you know, the convention center for sure, but even the, the Superdome or anyone up on the highway is walk across that bridge. They didn't have electricity on that side, but you could walk to dry land and, you know, hopefully there'd be something to save you. At least you get out of the flooded city. And I think the tragedy, and one of my favorite scenes that I recreate from there is there's actually a, a police sergeant with the Gretna police who, you know, he, he has his little, uh, he has two officers working with him and the three of them uh, over the course of uh, the night, Wednesday night, um, you know, the, fl- the flood was Monday, Tuesday people were still getting over the bridge, Wednesday, uh, you know, that's when the tension started. But, you know, they were able to get 1,500, 2,000 people onto buses in a way because they, they worked hard and, you know, it's what you want. Like in a tragedy, we all get together. It doesn't make a difference. We're rich or poor, or black or white. It's, you know, we link hands as human beings. But on their own, the Gretna police and the, the, the Jefferson Parish Sheriffs shut down the bridge. They had no right to. It's a state bridge. You know, Governor Blanco or the, the head of the transportation department for the state had the right to. But they just shut it down. They just they let cars through, but no pedestrians. They, they put police cars, uh, sheriff's vehicles blocking the way, had rifles, shot over people's heads like we see today, just talked that way to black people like, you know, get out, get out, get out, and, you know, using curse words. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, you know, right, right now. But, you know, that, that um, just people just trying to get to safety, but it was a largely black crowd walking into a predominantly white community, and there was fear. And, you know, blame the media, by the way, too, because, you know, think about it from the point of view of the people in Gretna. They're hearing stories from New Orleans about mass, mass murder and rape and rampant violence, and, you know, much of which turned out not to be true, much of which was being promulgated by the chief of police and the mayor himself, Ray Nagin. Um, but it just was this mess, and I, I just thought that, you know, that just – the Gretna Bridge is kind of a touchstone for understanding where we're at or where the city started off race-wise. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I guess one of the only things that probably you know, you know, I, even though they fired at them, which is definitely wrong. I mean, don't don't get me wrong that that they fired that they discharged weapons for no reason, you know, because obviously nobody was a threat there. But uh, you know, fortunately, I don't, I don't believe any of them was actually was actually shot, right? Well, well, I mean, no people trying to cross the Great Bridge. I mean, there were warning shots over people's heads. Right. You know, right. I mean, I mean, obviously, you talk about the Donziger Bridge. You know, talk about well, other yeah, yeah. places. Yeah. But, but no, on the, the Great Bridge, it's it just it was it was more the point that they blockaded the bridge. And to add to the craziness, I mean, you've got Ray Nagin stuck at the Hyatt Hotel, disabled hotel. He has barely any communications. He has Sally Foreman, his communications director, tap out on her BlackBerry a press release. Calling, all, calling on all people in the convention center, all people in New Orleans who are trapped there, head over the Crescent City Connection to the West Bank because it's dry, and you'll, be, and, and you'll find buses and safety there. So, you know, it's just one of these circumstances, just in a crisis where, you know, someone's pointing this way and another person's pointing that way, and you don't know who to listen to. The police were sending people. The New Orleans police were sending people uh, over, the, over the, 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 the bridge. I, I, I just think it added to the suffering. 
Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, you you read the the, the goings on, and you definitely get those images of you know Ferguson, of what happened in Baltimore, what you know, did you know basically the treatment of of black people as if you know they're somehow second class citizens. Um, but you know, and then the Danziger incident is definitely interesting that you brought that up because of the fact that you know I don't know if you've heard, but today they're reopening the trials. They're going to retry the trials again of the five people. Yeah, no, I, I just heard that news. And isn't, isn't there a new book uh, out that just focuses solely on the bridge? Did I hear that right? I, I believe that there is. I haven't seen it yet. But, yeah, right. it's, it's you know, I had this, this case where, you know, these four people were convicted of, of, of the murder and the cover-up, and one person was also convicted of the cover-up. But because there was this other scandal that went on with the uh, feds and and their, you know, district attorney. And, no, you, you, know, have Le- and, and you have Letton, who's venerated in New Orleans. I, I don't really get that. Um, I mean, he did some good things, but that's such an ugly episode. And, and, and you see the, the negative effect of the, an office that they were just acting irresponsibly. You know, they undermine well, their own cases. I mean, it's just, it's just tragedy. I mean, you took a tragedy, and now you made it a double tragedy because now yeah. everyone has to go through it again. I mean, justice was served until, like, oh, well, sorry, the prosecutor's you know, uh, are guilty of misconduct. So I'm sorry, people, that, you know, a jury said that these these people did something hor- uh, horrific, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do it over again. You don't mind, do you? Um, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I, let's, re- let, let's relive that again, because that's what we need, especially on the 10th anniversary of, of Katrina. We need to re- relive that horrible incident. Now, you know, before all of that happened with, with Letton in his office, you had, I mean, I had to say, I, you know, he was doing a good job Prior to that, you know, at least that's everyone. What everyone thought uh, that he was doing a good job. That he wasn't necessarily playing partisan politics with it. That he was going after the people that he should be going after, etc. Of course, you know, again, you know, for people that don't know what happened, basically, he, people in his office were going on like forums on NOLA.com, which is the city news, one of the city newspapers' website, and and making comments on articles. You know, basically, you know, sharing information and and. Not just acting unethically, but again, you know, you know, Pretending helping to be the else. other people's I, I, case, basically, basically releasing stuff that they shouldn't have been releasing, thus making it possible for there to be a new trial. Now, you know, you know, and, and your gut wants to say, you know, obviously these five people are, are most likely guilty, and you know, hopefully they'll be found guilty again in in, a, in another trial. But I guess the, you know, the civil rights justice side of me is like, well, if the prosecution screws up, then it's the defense attorney's responsibility to say, look, they screwed up. We need, you know, we need to have another trial because they failed to to do this properly. So I guess I understand why there needs to be a new trial, even though it's it's utterly frustrating. Do you want to know how, from an outsider's point of view, I, I, I live in New York. I said earlier, I, I, I came from San Francisco where I was covering Silicon Valley. I, I know New Orleans well, but, you know, I, I, I still struggle with Esplanade versus Esplanade, right? I'm not a local. That's, that's clear. I, but, mean, you know, I, I mean, I've lived here half my life. It still just bothers me to say Calliope instead of Calliope. <laughs> every Mardi Gras, a Mardi Gras float will come by, and I'll point at the musical instrument on the float, and I'll say, what's that? And everyone will say, it's a Calliope. Like, good. What's that name? Calliope. No. No, but, but but I think the advantage of having an outsider's perspective is that how monumental the Katrina story is. I I, I think the Donziger Bridge is a, a perfect example because I probably spent two paragraphs in the whole book about something that some other fellow, some other person, has written an entire book about. You know, I mean, you know, New Orleans has had a public ho- hospital since 1736, the longest in this country, and you know. Goodbye Charity Hospital, and it, it barely got any attention because the city was debating whether to allow entire communities to be rebuilt or would they green space them. You know, it, it, it's right. you know, remaking public housing, remaking everything, kind of a you know, political battle. At the election, you know, right after, a few months after Katrina, um, there was a scheduled election for February 1st or so, and people were saying, oh, you've got to have the election. It's like, well, but no one lived there except for the sliver by the river, the, you know, the, the Isle of, Deni- of Denial, which was predominantly white in a city that had been two-thirds black. And like, okay, you're going to have an election now? That doesn't seem quite fair, but everything was a fight. You know, 54% of the city are renters, uh, were renters at the time of, of Katrina, and the landlords are saying, like, 
hey, second, third, fourth floors, they, they, weren't, they weren't flooded. We could make a lot of money, you know, sprucing up our places, redoing the first floor and renting them out at a time when people were desperate for housing. But, like, people's stuff was in, were in the apartments. They're stuck in Houston with you or, or, or Utah or who knows where. Some have the money to just fly in and deal. Some people don't. Some people are traumatized. And, you know, by October 1st, which is, you know, barely a month after Katrina, the landlords are saying, hey, we want to start evicting people take their stuff, throw it away so we could, you know, take over these apartments and rent it out. Of course that went to court. Bulldozing, that went to court. Everything went to court. Everything was a fight. You know, FEMA and waiting on the FEMA maps, you know, waiting on the Bring New Orleans Back Commission to come up with a plan, waiting on Ray Nagin to make up his mind until he changes it and remakes it up and makes it up a third time because he would just flip-flop and just that man could not make a decision. I, I, I love a quote from Sally Foreman, his communication director. He'd always say, let me percolate on that. The guy liked to percolate a long, long time on a lot, a lot of things. <laughs> and, and what's sad was that before the storm, like, I mean, there was, there was, there was two Ray Nagin. There was the pre-storm Reinagin, and then there was the post-storm Reinagin. The pre-storm Reinagin, you know, was somebody that I was like, oh, this this guy looks like, I didn't even live in the city at the time, but I looked at him, and I was like, he looked like he might be able to do a good job, and he, he you know, but once that storm hit, I think he got shell-shocked. I think, I think that's probably what happened. He probably was so overwhelmed that he just never came back from it, but... Yeah, he, he he's one of the main characters in the book. I, I you know I recreate the scene of him at City Hall and having to abandon and and, and the Haya and I, I I really do think you you, you have it. He was shell shocked in over his head and you know he he had that that awful human trait that he needed help but couldn't admit he needed help. So he'd just right. be the cool cat, you know. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. I have it underhand. Like, but Mayor, you don't have it underhand. You know, underhand. You know, you you, you do need help. He was saying crazy stuff. Like, he gets up at the at the at the Sheridan Hotel. It's uh, six weeks, whatever, after Katrina, and it's it's a bunch of union folks um, who are there. The NAACP, AFL-CIO, and there it's a meeting. A few hundred people. Like, hey. All this money is washing into New Orleans, all this recovery money, all this disaster money. We, the local people, uh, whether we're business people or workers who are desperate for work, we want to make sure that we have a share uh, of all this money coming in, that it's not just the big outside multinationals, um, but local companies that are also uh, you know, getting money to because – that's the way you bring back a city. You 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 know you, you pump up the economy. So there's this big meeting, and Ray Nagin is invited to open open it up, and he goes, I know he he starts this way. I know I know what you're all thinking. Like you know, what are we going to do about all the Mexicans in town? And he's like, what? <laughs> what? You know, and like you know, then one day he says, I'm going to create a casino district. He doesn't mention it to anybody. He doesn't share it with. Hey, what do you think about this tourism industry? Hey, what do you think about this policy, people? Hey, what do you think about it? My staff. He just gets up in front of the press and just starts making it up, and, and, and all. You, you really did feel watching him the way I was. I, I should say, by the way, I lived at the Sheridan Hotel. Then most of the meetings for the city back then were in the Sheridan. The Bring New Orleans Back Commission met every Monday at the Sheridan Hotel. Uh, the mayor would have a press conference. It was at the the the, the, the hotel. One of the two or three places open for lunch was the hotel. Oliver Thomas was living there. All the city council members who lost their home were living there. And so everyone was meeting in my house. So I, I probably saw Nagin three or four times a week then. I used to call it small town New Orleans, a city of 450,000. Uh, that was a town of like 20,000 perhaps in those first three or four months. So I'd see him all the time. And he was, he was kind of in a daze. And sometimes I didn't know, if, is, he, is he just trying to be that cool cat athlete that you, you, you don't see him sweat? Or... Or is he just, 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 they, they, to me, it was always New Orleans' misfortune that you had a neophyte. You had somebody without right. allies. You had somebody without experience um, at a time when you really, really needed someone with experience. And, you know, and then in comes Mitch Landry. He's, you know, he's the opposite. I, I, I know people have complaints about Mitch Landry. I, I have a critique of Mitch Landry. Um, I but, critique know, Landry on this, on, this, on this podcast, too. I voted for him. <laughs> Uh, but even the second time, but I still have I still have plenty of critiques for him. But but you know he came in he, he you know he he understood how to get things done. He understood government. He understood how to make things 
happened. Ray Nagin didn't, you know. And and before, as you say, the two Ray Nagin before the storm, it didn't make a difference, you know. A mayor is right. like the figurehead, and let's get Donald Trump to build a tower that was about to happen until Katrina uh, hit, and you know, just just be the the ambassador for the city, and you know, just just try. I mean, I I would argue that a lot of the good things weren't. I mean. He talked a lot, but crime was still out of hand. The, the city had, you know, myriad of problems, and none of which seemed to be going in the right direction. But you know, in fairness, it was only a few years. But you know, then right. once Katrina hit, forget it. You know, it, it's you needed some, you needed a different uh, person. I mean, he, even stuff like his chief of staff had been there only a month uh, when Katrina. He was on his third chief of staff, even though it was his third year as as, as mayor, uh, and she'd been on the job a month. I mean, it's just inexperienced. Everywhere, and I, I, I think that really, I think that really showed. That's true. I, I mean, and you know, it was, it was interesting because you had other areas of, of New Orleans too that, that, you know, the New Orleans area that, that did get hit, you know, badly. You had, you know, a lot of people being criticized, crit- critical of, you know, Jefferson Parish uh, president who sent the pump operators away because he feared yeah, for the safety, and, and, <laughs> oh and then you know people were you know criticizing him for trying to protect his flood operators when it could have maybe could have had a better plan for that. After the storm, you had Saint Bernard Parish making a law that said uh, you couldn't rent to anybody who wasn't a family member. Right, which, the blood, blood law. What was it called? The... Pretty much, pretty much, basically saying. We had a lot of white people living here, and we don't want the com- the black people who are going to be coming back with no homes living here now, too. So we're going to make a law that, that basically says that without saying it. Of course, everyone, no, everyone was too smart to realize that's what they were doing, so it was quickly thrown out. But, you know. You, know, so, 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 uh, you don't really have to go. I mean, it's fine you want to go to St. Bernard Parish and Jefferson Parish and talk about that stuff. And, you know, it, it was happening all over. You know, oh, we don't want this big complex here. Well, right. okay, that big complex also happened to have a, a, a large portion of African Americans. I wonder if that's just a coincidence. But the same kind of thing was happening in New Orleans. The story I tell is so in, in, in Lakeview, it was a, a few months after Katrina, people are starting slowly to, to, come, to come back. Um, maybe, maybe this is January, so this is four or five months. And, mm-hmm. and um, there's talk in the city of, um, or Nagan is talking about putting trailers. Uh, on the neutral ground, putting trailers in in parklands that we really need. I mean, he understood we really need to get people back, and right. any way we can make that happen. And so he announces this, and the city council like, no, 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 we're going to fight it. And so this fight is going on. What they do in Lakeview is they decide, okay, he wants to use the neutral ground uh, to put trailers. So they take, uh, I think it's West End. Um, they use the neutral ground there uh, as their garbage dump. And so every ruined refrigerator, <laughs> all the detritus from, from your ruined house, your couch and your sheetrock and all, they just are putting in huge piles, these, these mountains, 20 feet tall, you know, piles all along there. Because, and then it became a moot point. You're, you're not putting any trailers there because there's you know, these, these you know, mountains of trash there. And that was clearly directed like, no, we don't want trailers um, in our community if it means outsiders in our community. And you, you could figure out what the word outsiders might have meant. Uh, there, there was this sense that I, I had this sense sitting, going to the Bring Orleans Back Commission meeting every Monday. You know, mm-hmm. everyone was there. I mean, Vietnamese community, black communities, white folks, and everyone was just frustrated. Everyone seemed to be speaking with the same voice. Joe Canizzaro unveils his plan. We're going to you know, put a moratorium on permits. We might not rebuild all of the city. Black, white didn't make a difference. You can't tell us that. We're rebuilding. We're just not going to listen. We're going to do it uh, and all. And yet, you know, I, I went to Lakeview and I talked to them about their story. And, you know, it, it, is, it is heroics. It is resiliency. It's an amazing, amazing story of what people did there. But it was interesting. I would ask them about... Lake, I would ask them about the Lower Ninth Ward. I'd ask them about New Orleans East. And their attitude is, what do I care about the New Orleans East? I just want to take care of my own. As far as I'm concerned, New Orleans East shouldn't have come back because it's low-lying and it's a crappy neighborhood oh, anyway, in their view. And, you know, and they said the same of the Lower Ninth Ward. Why should we rebuild the Lower Ninth Ward? It's, it's just, you know, it's just a, a crappy place. And it's like, wow, that's the spirit, huh? We're all in this together as long as I get mine and I don't care about you. And, you know, I right. mean, that kind of stuff really, really bothered me. I, I, I guess I bought into that notion that that you know there's there's everyday relations and we get along or don't get along but boy when when the going gets tough 
you know, we link arms and 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 we 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 work together in a crisis. And you know, I'm sorry, I, I there was some of that. You know, there's black people saving white people and white people saving black people. On you know, during the flood, I mean, there was of course lots of that, and lots of beautiful her- her- heroics and all. But the opposite was true too. There was just just a lot of us versus them. We're going to change the city demographically, you know, uh, or we're not coming back. Said Jimmy Reese. You know, uh, uh, Senator uh, Congressman Baker from Baton Rouge. You know, God did what we couldn't. He he cleared out public housing. I mean, really, it was a sense among some that Katrina was an opportunity, an opportunity not just to improve the schools or to improve the city, but an opportunity to make it a, a less poor, more white city. And there was really a concerted effort to do that. And on top of that, there was policies that helped that happen, even if that wasn't the aim of those policies, wrote home to me being the prime, prime, prime uh, example of that. But, you know, there's a deliberate effort and, 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 um, and policy mistakes that helped make it an unequal uh, recovery. I, I argued it was not an equal opportunity storm. Uh, mm-hmm. If you lived in New Orleans you were, and you were a black homeowner, you were three and a half times more likely to have lose your home to flooding than if you were a white homeowner. And it wasn't an equal opportunity storm, in part because you had something like Road Home saying, hey, we're not going to give you money based on the cost of rebuilding. We're going to give you money based on the assessed worth. So if you've got a $70,000 house in the Lower Ninth Ward, but it's going to cost 150000 to rebuild, sorry. You know, here's your, here's your $70,000, you know, through road, home, and insurance, and good right. luck getting the rest. But if you have, you know, a home in Lakeview, and that's worth 300000 you got $300,000, and that's enough to rebuild, you know, right. it, it works. You know, the, the economics were off because the whole program was based on appraised value, and we all know that, you know, the same home in a black community is appraised at less money than the same home in a white community. and yet. That's true. The only thing that counted after Katrina is like, do I have enough money to rebuild? And a you know, a contractor costs the same, sheetrock costs the same, whether you're, you know, in Lakeview on one side of the park or a city park or Gentilly, a black neighborhood on the the opposite side of the park. Yet, you know, the same home is worth twice as much in Lakeview as Gentilly. So there were so many people in a Gentilly, black middle class neighborhood, who were just left short. You know, they just didn't have enough rebuilding money, and some did it anyway. I mean, and, you know, some redid it anyway and live, live even to this day in half-rebuilt houses. You know, they half-rebuilt their house, and eventually a community organization, volunteer organization came and helped them finish. So some people came back anyway uh, right. despite that. But, I, you know, I would argue that Road Home really thwarted a lot of people from, from coming back. Yeah, I mean, one of the first things that I when I when I first got settled in Houston, you know, after they're evacuating, one of the first thoughts I had was, oh my God, they're going to try and use this as an opportunity uh, to re to change the demographics of the city and and to to make it, you know, again, as, as you said, and 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 it's partially what they did. And we also had um, what you call it the. Um, oh, because I, I never heard before. I mean, you, you learn something new every day. I never heard that that was the reason why they used that big area on West End Boulevard for dumping. You know, I saw there was lots of white goods, and there was also lots of uh, chopped up tree junk that was over there too. I just thought that that that's what the, what the city was using it for. I didn't realize that it was people preemptively trying to prevent um, you know others from moving into their neighborhood. And that was directly from, you know, the, the fellow who was the head of the Lakeview uh, Civic Association uh, back then, that that was a concerted uh, concerted plan. Oh, wow. That's just crazy. Anyway, um, you know, I always schedule the show a little longer just to make sure that if we do run long that we're, we have more than enough time to finish and we don't have to rush anybody. But um, go get ahead. Get off the air? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go ahead and get off the air now. But uh, first, if you have anything, you know, I do have the link. Um, to, I retweeted a tweet that has a link where you can buy the book. It's I think the same link is also uh, on the Blog Talk Radio page and over at Liberal Dan, Liberal Dan Radio uh, webpage as well, liberaldan.com. Um, is there any this but, final thing you want to say? Or yeah, no, I I, I want to tout Rising Tide X because yes. you know it's it's interesting. I I, I started this book. I mean, I, I go back ten years. Some of the people, some of the main characters in the book, I've, I've known since ten days. 
two weeks, three weeks after the storm, and I've been following them. But I really kind of started this book in earnest three and a half years ago, and that's when Rising Tide really made my my radar screen. And you know, I, I would kind of I never had the timing right. I'd always have to kind of watch it, you know, via a computer link or or whatever. But I would because it was always so good. And so I had this secret fantasy that while I was writing the book, and no one even knew I was writing the book, you know, like I want to speak at Rising Tide. That's my goal. <laughs> and, and you know, so it's, it's actually a real thrill uh, for me to be talking to a group of people who actually, whether they know it or not, taught me uh, a lot in, in the working on this, this book. So on August 29th, in the morning of Xavier, I'm going to have my chance to meet the Rising T- Tide uh, group and, and tell them a little bit about what I, what I, what I learned doing this book. Well, do it. And again, everybody who wants to come to Rising Tide, it is free this year. You just have to go to the Rising Tide uh, NOLA webpage and click on the Eventbrite link and get your tickets there. Um, you can also, again, find out uh, where to buy the book on the website, and you can also, uh, you know, hopefully check out uh, Gary Irvine. And actually, you know, you talked about Black Lives Matters, but uh, D. Ray McKesson is also going to be at Rising Tide as well, giving the keynote address. So it's it's definitely fitting um, that in a storm that, you know, disproportionately hurt uh, New Orleans as black citizens uh, as compared to everyone else, that he is going to be there uh, speaking about uh, that issue as well. So, oh, by the way, I'm also doing, if you don't mind, a plug, uh, Maple sure. Street Books on Wednesday at 6 p.m. Um, uh, this upcoming Wednesday at 6 p.m. at Maple Street Books. I'm going to do a, a reading, talk a little bit about the book, Do you know, sign any books if anyone wants. Excellent. That that that's that that is uh, great. I'd love to. Uh, no, probably won't be able to make it because my podcasts are on Wednesdays. But I definitely, <laughs> look, forward to, I definitely look forward to seeing you uh, at Rising Tide, and I hope everyone can come out and check it out, and definitely buy the book because it, it is it is definitely a worthwhile read. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, have a good one. Take care. Bye. bye Okay, and that is the again the end of uh, Liberal Dan Radio. I do want to uh, again make sure that you come out, go check out the. Um, Go check out the um, webpage uh, for Rising Tide NOLA. Register for the event there, and you'll be able to uh, hear from uh, Gary Rivlin, Dean McKesson, perhaps even myself, and other people um, pertaining to uh, New Orleans and Katrina uh, 10 years afterwards. So that is the end of Liberal Dan Radio this week. Uh, thank you for listening. I'll be back next week, same time, uh, 8 p.m. Central on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, you can follow me at Liberal Dan Radio on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Liberal Dan, Liberal Dan.com, Blog Talk Radio.com slash Liberal Dan. Until next week, this is Dan Zimmerman with Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left, that's right. <laughs>